Hi everyone, welcome to Human to Human. I'm your host Sarah Scher, and this is the very first season of the University of Manitoba's Anthropology Department podcast, where I hope to explore the topic of anthropology through conversation with faculty and students so that everyone can have a better understanding of what anthropology is and can be. This podcast was also created on a campus located on the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. As a podcast dedicated to anthropology, this project is also a part of the Anthropology Department's commitment to community engagement and research on the rich, diverse, and multifaceted ways of being human. Once again, I'm your host Sarah Schur, and this is Human to Human. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on today's episode of Human to Human. I'm Sarah and I'd like to give a warm welcome to my guest, Dr. Rumel Halder. Dr. Halder is a sociocultural anthropologist whose interests lie in studying identity, transnational migration and globalization, international development, post-colonialism and the political economy with a focus on South Asia. Dr. Halder is also a sessional instructor here in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Manitoba but previously also worked in Bangladesh as an assistant professor in anthropology. Dr. Halder, it's so nice to be able to speak with you today. So thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you so much uh, (laughs) for having me. It's my honor. Oh, but I guess I should also say perhaps it's nice to be able to chat with you today outside of class because I am currently in one of your courses, uh, Globalization and Transnational Migration. And we, I mean, we often have discussions in that course about anthropology and specifically that topic. So before we begin discussing maybe like what your research has been in anthropology, I was wondering if we could begin with how your interest in anthropology began. I know you are originally from Bangladesh and, you know, the education process is maybe a bit different there where you mm-hmm. have to like decide really early on. Well, that's a good question, actually. I didn't have any clue about anthropology, neither me or nor any of my family members that didn't heard anything about anthropology. I was a pure science student, like physics, chemistry, math guy. And in Bangladesh, you know, as a guy, you have two options. Either you have to be a doctor or you have to be (laughs) an engineer. Others, no choices, right? Your marriage market will be so low (laughs) if you do not be a doctor or engineer. So... After finishing my, you know, here you call it high school education, we call it college education. That is 12 Mm. years, and it's a British system. We are colonized by England for for 200 years. So still British legacy existed. So after finishing my high school in Bangladesh, you have to write admission tests for entering to universities. So I wrote admission tests, a couple of universities. And yeah, I studied Jahanginawar University. It's a, it's a public university close to Dhaka, the capital in Bangladesh. So I able to secure seats in, I think, three departments, political science, history, and philosophy. And, oh no, fourth, the dramatics. That's the s- program I want to be, actually. Oh, yeah. I remember but uh, I'm the only son of my parents, you know, and my, my depart- the dramatics department said, no, this is not something we can do because your parents going to take you from here and we're going to lose one <laughs> seat that we, wa- we do not want that. And it is quite expensive for us. <laughs> and then I talked to one of my cousin's friend. He was a faculty in the Department of English, and I didn't have any clue. And I also had a chance to go to anthropology. Then he said, why history? 
why philosophy go to anthropology. So I took that path. I just listened and entered into anthropology. But uh, as a high school student or college student, I love to debate about politics, culture, history, you know. Mm. I grew up with, you know, playing a little bit of music or acting, all kind of stuff. So when I entered into, you know, uh, anthropology department, I enjoyed actually. I feel like, well, probably I've been waiting for these issues in my life. I didn't have a chance, you know. Mm. So I didn't have any plan or I didn't know anything what would be my career path. Just I followed that my cousin's friend and I jumped in anthropology. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and like I have recently heard in class you speak about your, your research. Mm -hmm. So since then, you have traveled to Canada and I mean, you got your master's and doctorate in Canada as well. And then you started teaching mm -hmm. as a professor in anthropology. So could you like share a bit about what your research in anthropology has been on? Well, that's a good question. Like, as I said, when I entered into universities in the third year in Bangladesh, I had a chance to do some ethnographic research in anthropology. Like you have to go to a community, spend some time. So. You know, Sarah, in anthropology, most of the anthropologists, they pick their research topic from their lived experience mm. in many ways. Probably someone entered into the poverty, someone entered into uh, experience, you know, racial discriminations or anything. So that is one way we find research project or research subject. Or we do literature review and when you do undergrad programs and you study lots of stuff and based on that you probably find your, you know, research topic. For me, I grew up in a small town in Bangladesh, and it is by the side of the Meghna River, or it is one branch of Padma River, all the way from Himalaya to Bengal. So when I grew up in the small town, I found lots of people lost their home, you mm -hmm. know, because of riverbank erosion. So when I was a high school student or university student, I thought, well, these are the people all on a sudden, they're displaced, you know, because of natural calamities or disaster or river erosion. And personally, I met some of my friends. They were, you know, big farmer, like they probably have 100 or more acres of land. And within one night, they become a homeless or, you know, landless. And they call it, uh, you know, uh, uh, they lost everything, you know. Mm -hmm. So there is a saying in my own research I found, if you, if you got fire, uh, and your house burn, you get a little bit of ashes. For riverbank erode people, they do not have anything. Everything gone, just water, right? So that actually forced me to start thinking about human displacement in response to you know natural disasters. So that's the way I start my small research as a third-year university student or honors student. So I, that is my first anth anthropological work. Then in the master's program, I studied, you know, by this time, Bangladesh had a huge revolution. It's called microcredit program. And if you probably know, the guy name is Dr. Yunus. He was the founder of Grameen Bank, and he got Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. So first time in Bangladesh, uh, women are given credit because uh, it is a ma male-dominated society and mostly upper-class or middle-class men or, or household head, we call it, mostly men, they are able to get finance or financial support from any formal institution, for example, banks. But women in the rural areas or, you know, farmers or we call them invisible peasants, they didn't have any access to f any kind of financial, you know, support or credit. They are not considered 
credit worthy. So there's a huge program, microfinance program, and I try to understand whether this program being empowerment, that's another, you know, indicators of social development, that's one of my areas of research. I try to understand whether this microfinance brings changes in women's life. So I, I studied in-depth ethnographic work in two villages in Bangladesh. And I found mixed thing, you know. Uh, there are lots of changes happen. At the same time, I also found the microfinancing organizations in Bangladesh, they are charging huge amount of interest. Sometimes it's 33 to almost 48% interest, which is crazy. But it is different than, or it's better than traditional money lending system. So traditional money lending system, before harvest, for example, $100, a farmer borrowed after four months after harvest, $200. It's crazy. So that was my research, so I studied. And another aspect I would say in Bangladesh, the anthropology as a discipline emerged or established by uh, non, uh, international developmental organization, you know, mm -hmm. World Bank and uh, USAID, Ford Foundation, uh, British Council. These are the people that founded anthropology program in Bangladesh. Therefore, social development is key because mm -hmm. they needed, you know, a uh, cultural broker, I would say, like UN organization, developmental organization, they have development programs for rural Bangladesh or Bangladesh as such, but they didn't have local expert who can translate, you know, local perspective and con communicate with international organization. So that's quite interesting. Like if you see many in Canada, probably it was not the case, you know, so our anthropology department actually established by multinational corporations or you know global developmental organizations. So I'm product of that you know arena and that perspective. So social development was key in anthropological research, and we always hope that after graduation I'll work for any non-profit organization mm -hmm. or multinational organization. And I did, basically. I worked for Save the Children, uh, USA Fund. I was mm. a researcher. And uh, later I worked for United Nations, like UNICEF as a consultant. I also worked for Asian Development Bank as a consultant. So so developmental perspective is huge in, 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 in Bangladesh. And most of the social anthropologists or cultural anthropologists we hired in those arena. And some of the few people, uh, you know, they're able to teach in a, in a public universities. So that's my, then, well, uh, I grew up in a middle-class families and I did well for strange reasons in the, my, <laughs> my undergrad program. So, and I had an opportunity to teach in a public university. So in Bangladesh, what happened, like you have to stood first class first and second. So I was second or, you know, in the top ladder or whatever. So I, so I, I switched my Save the Children position and st start teaching in a, in a public university as a, as a lecturer mm. initially. But it was painful for me, you know. My salary go almost uh, 50 or more than 50% down because. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, so, but my parents wanted to be university professor and I love to teach and, you know, so that's the journey. Well, so then in again, just uh, Bangladeshi master's degree is not enough to pursue your academic career. So I was looking for what are the avenues I have. So by this time, uh, Ford Foundation, they have some fellowship in, in, in my department at Jahangir University for the applied anthropology program. So I was given that opportunity and I got the fellowship from that program. and. 
I was accepted at Memorial University, Newfoundland, St. John's. Yeah. So that's my journey to Canada. I was looking for other options, probably Australia. I was also uh, looking for America, but for strange reason, it didn't work out. Uh, and I had a very good communication with my supervisor at uh, uh, Memorial, Dr. Wen Fai. So his communications, his way of interacting, everything. That time, first time in Bangladesh, we got internet. So it's a dial-up, you know. We we. <laughs> We composed the letter, then I plugged in uh, by, you know, telephone, and there's a ding, 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 ding sound, and then we connect. So it's uh, another world. Anyway, so I had, I got the offer and came to uh, Memorial. So all the way Bangladesh to Newfoundland, right? It's, <laughs> it's a quite a journey, you know, and for a guy like me, you know, and not many brown people that time in, <laughs> in, 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 in Newfoundland. So it's quite interesting. Sometime in the mall, elderly woman stopped me and touched my hand and said, gentlemen, you have a wonderful complexion. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and then I laughed. And so I enjoyed my, uh, you know, academic journey at Memorial. It was quite challenging. I didn't have computer my first term. I used to spend most of my time in the lab and I didn't know how to type, you know, sp mm -hmm. very speedy ways. And but I survived in the winter and all kind of stuff. And I was going to ask what your experience <coughs> was like for winter. Was that your first winter well, this experience? Is my, that was my first winter, and that was my first experience observing snow, you know yeah. what I'm saying? That's quite <laughs> interesting. Like, I, as I said, I grew up in Bangladesh, and, and I grew up in a Christian family. My, my mom was a Protestant Christian, and lots of missionaries used to come to my my town and they're all from Australia and New Zealand and some of them from England too. So sometimes I saw pictures and their wall is on top of the mountain and they have, oh yeah, mountain is covered by snow and you know Bangladesh is very hot in the mo summertime plus 35, 40 temperatures and, and I I always wonder, wow, these people are so lucky, you know, if you go to the mountain with a cup of milk and sugar, it turns into the ice cream because that time <laughs> I thought like, this is probably the best something in this world you can have is ice cream. <laughs> but my, 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 my perspective changed when I come to Canada. Well, <laughs> that having snow and cold is not always fun, you know. Yeah. You know, ice cream is good, but not like that, you know. But, you know, I survived. And in Newfoundland, I had wonderful friends and mm. the warm friend, I would say. And I was cared by my friends. And that was quite helped to survive. You know, one of my friends, Jill Ellison, she did later PhD in anthropology. And the day first snowfall happened, she didn't tell anything. I was in my office and she said, Rumel, I'll be coming to pick you up within 15 minutes. Just come to outside. <laughs> I just thought, okay, we'll probably go for coffee. And then when I come to outside, I saw everything is white. And I was jumping on the snow, you know, and I have a few papers in my hand, and it's everywhere. And Jill was laughing inside the car. And she said, you know, that's the reason I came, and I wanted to see how you react. <laughs> you know. yes. Oh, that's a sweet story. And my professors, they loved me. I don't know. After, I think after, so one of the Bangladeshi person came to uh, Newfoundland, I think 1971, 72. He was my prof, Dr. Khan Arifin. He recently died. But after that, probably in 2001, I, 
the next Bangladeshi guy at Memorial was me in the, in, mm. the, in the Department of Anthropology. And that time, one professor who taught me research methodology, he used to ask me, who is the better student, you or Arifin? <laughs> I said, Arifin was my prof, you know. So, yeah. Then after finishing my master's at Memorial, I have lots of story about Memorial. I, <laughs> I do not know. Like, I enjoyed my journey there. So I finished my, it's, it was one year master's program, and, but I had to write a small, you know, monograph thesis. And I wrote about arsenic contamination in ground level water in Bangladesh. But I looked at from political ecology, political economy perspective. So, so well, I finished my master's and the day I left, and another interesting story, like the day I, I started my first day of my class, that was 9-11. Okay. And the whole incident happened in Newark, and I was staying in a dorm uh, with three Arab guys. They're mm -hmm. all from Palestinian. I didn't have any clue what's going on. I didn't have TV. I just came all the way from Bangladesh, and I f even in the fall, I used to wear a winter jacket. So that's my first day, and then all planes landed in Newfoundland, almost 5,000 people. They, we also opened up our, our, all the halls and everything, and city jumped in. People supported them anyway. So that's another interesting story. Then I came to Toronto, you know, and, you know, as a Bangladeshi person. Nobody knew about Newfoundland or St. John's. So I came to Canada, and I wanted to prove my friends back home that I came to Canada and study. So only I can prove that if I take a photo in front of uh, Niagara Falls. So I <laughs> wanted to come to see <laughs> Niagara Falls, and I came to Toronto. I have some families, like my cousins. So they picked me up from the airport, and I had a wonderful experience. Or I would say this is the first time I see hundreds of brown people outside of brown land, <laughs> you know. And I find, is it Canada? Because I thought probably my plan landed in a different airport somewhere in India. But it shouldn't <laughs> be in three hours, right? So it was fascinating because in my experience in Newfoundland, it's a small Irish, not many multicultural individuals in that city that time. So it fascinated me and I found, wow, that's quite interesting. Then I had a chance to meet lots of Bangladeshi families in Toronto. Then I decided that time, like if I had a chance, if I pursue my higher studies, I will study immigrants, South Asian mm -hmm. or Bangladeshi immigrants to Canada. So because when I first came, you know, as an anthropologist, it's an anthropological mindset, we call it. All on a sudden, certain things fascinated you. You want to see certain ways why people look certain things, do certain things, say certain things. So I was observing, listening stories, and I thought, wow, could be quite interesting and try to know why people migrate, how their life and all kind of stuff. So that leads me to my PhD research. So as I said at the beginning, our lived experience actually shape how we uh, study our research or research subject or how do you find a research project that another scholar, Eric Wolf, probably you are familiar, he migrated from Europe and he came to America and he also said like his journey in the Second World War shaped him as an anthropologist and he spent a few few months in the concentration camp like in England mm. and he met all these Marxist scholars and then then came last probably shift he took all the way to America then he entered into the war. What I'm trying to say that we didn't I didn't plan that I'll I'll come to Manitoba or I'll pursue that direction. So I always say my, my, I was born in a small town 
uh, it's called Modbaria in the southern part of Bangladesh. It's a small town. But my journey from Montpellier to Manitoba, I didn't plan. <laughs> That's for sure, you know, but it happens. So you, you ended up researching immigrants in mm-hmm. Toronto. Mm-hmm. Could you um, expand maybe a little bit more on the specifics of, of who and what you were studying? Well, That's a good question, sir. Uh, well, after finishing my master's, I went back to Bangladesh and then after two years later, in 2004, I came to Toronto, uh, Winnipeg, and uh, then I started my PhD program. I finished my coursework, but as I said, that I had a intention to study uh, migration, and I wrote one page or two pages of proposal, and I sent to my supervisor, Ray Wist, and I should tell another story. My my master supervisor, he met Ray Wist and in a, in a uh, so. CASCA conference is a Canadian Anthropological Sociological Association's annual conference because in uh, to pursue higher studies in anthropology, you have to find a professor who has some understanding about the culture or the society you want to study. That's why I didn't able to pursue my PhD at Memorial because mm-hmm. there's no expert there or, you know, most of the professors, they mostly work in Europe or Ireland or Nova Scotia, that area. So my supervisor, Ray, uh, went five at Memorial. He met my UFM supervisor, and he said, if you do not take Rumel, so Rumel cannot <laughs> pursue his PhD. So anyway, so but by this time, Dr. Ray Wiest, my supervisor at University of Manitoba, almost retired. He said, no, I'm not going to take any more PhD students. So anyway, after that meeting, he changed his mind, and I was, the, I was his last student. So I, I, I took anthropology classes here, and I also, uh, the course you are taking, I also took similar kind of course uh, and migration and globalization. And at the same time, I would say that my lived experience also forced me to think about identity. Mm. I wanted to, stu- or I studied Bangladeshi immigrants, how they negotiate their identity in a, in a transnational settings or multicultural settings. So why I am ask- looking at identity? Another reason is my identity in Bangladesh as a, as a religious minority. I grew up in a school, in a town or in a, wherever it's a, it's a, I was considered as religious minority based on my religious identity, uh, Protestant family, and Bangladesh predominantly Muslim uh, society, 94, 95%, and 4, 5%, 4% person people probably Hindus, and 1% Christians, Buddhists, and more than 35 ethnic minorities. So I belong to one person categories. That's one thing. And I also mixed up with, uh, I also grew up in a mixed religious family, dad from Hindu background, mom from Christian background. And growing up in a school uh, among 1,200 students, I'm the only quote unquote Christian student. Okay. So, so all kind of aspects actually shaped me to force to think about how this group of people define their identity. and. When I came to uh, Canada, first time I realized that there's a huge segregation between Hindus and Muslims and Christians in an immigrant settings. But I didn't study that much, or I just looked at all kinds of aspects. So in my PhD research, I looked at how this identity shaped. People carry their memories, their stories, their religious ethnic identities, and how they negotiate those identities, how they connect among each other. So these kind of questions I asked. In my, in my research in, when I did my PhD in Toronto among Bangladeshi immigrants. 
So one of the key aspect was, you know, colonialization. Like I looked at how colonial history, 200 years of history, how it shaped Bengali, the ethnic identity. And then uh, after post-colonial settings like 1947 to 71, that's the period I looked at this. Islamic identity also shaped very much as a nationalistic identity. Then we have lots of movements and revolutions. So, for example, uh, Bengali as an ethnic group, the country I came from, we fight for protecting our mother tongue, right? Mm. In 1952, there is a huge protest uh, happened because uh, when British left India, Bangladesh used to consider that time as East Pakistan, and today's Pakistan we used to call West Pakistan. So we become another colony of West Pakistan. So West Pakistani people actually introduced Urdu should be the national language of Bangladesh. Then Bangladesh intellectual students, they protested. So police shot more than 200 individuals. And uh, so this is the first time in human history probably a small ethnic group that shed blood for protecting their mother tongue. So that kind of movements leads to an independence war in 1971. You know, and then nine months war, half a million women were raped by Pakistani army, almost three, three million people were killed. You know, so then we become Bangladesh as an independent uh, independent nation. So I bring those stories, and when migrants come to Canada, whether they bring those history and how they negotiate with Pakistani immigrants, how they define their religious identity, how they define, or many Muslims, or many, they used to consider that majority, or they never felt that as a majority they are privileged in their life. But when they come to Canada, first time they probably experience their ethnic minorities or visible minorities, right? And the pain of becoming a minority. So in my PhD research, I pay attention to how majority and minority issues people carry in a new location. And based on that, they define their social space and how they define their cultural identity, how they negotiate. So sometimes they crack jokes. Sometimes, you know, they do not want to hang around among each other. All kind of mm -hmm. aspects are important to look at. Because sometimes we think that immigrants, they bring similar kind of stories. That's not true. Even they come from the same cultural groups, we have different stories based on our religious identity, sometimes class identity or gender identity. Female experience could be different than the male's experience, right? Or as a you know, elite person or rich person from Bangladesh or any parts of the world, your journey to new location would be different. So those diversities are important in anthropological research, you know, to understand them complexity, history, and human diversities. Those are in interesting way we see migration or we see people or we see complexity. It's not that the people come as a homogeneous entity. It's not always true, right? I need many hours. I do not know how much yeah. time you have. I can tell four days about all my stories. You know? <laughs> no, that was great. We often talk about identity within mm -hmm. anthropology. And how would you say your own identity as someone from Bangladesh studying other Bengali people as well as being in the Christian minority within your own home country? Do you think that that would have influenced your acceptance within these immigrant communities in Toronto at all or changed the way that your research? Well, as an anthropologist, well, as a Bangladeshi, it's my national identity. I carried Bangladeshi passport. Bengali is my ethnic identity mm -hmm. because of my linguistic orientation. And uh, 
My religious identity, obviously, is a minority identity, that's for sure. But all these issues came to my research uh, in the discussions. People asked questions, I answered. But I, in many ways, I was insider because I, I could speak Bengali or I carried Bangladeshi passport. I have, you know, that is my insider perspective. At the same time, I was also outsider because of my class, you know. Mm. Uh, I was a PhD student or I used to teach in a public university that uphold my status as a professor or my upper middle class background or my academic journey. I was affiliated with an university as a PhD student. So these are my outsider perspectives. So both are important in my research and both are contested in different ways. In many ways, I was way, way welcome. At the same time, people also ask my, you know, religious identity or uh, sometimes they ask my caste identity or, you know, whether I belong to, because my surname Haldar can be, you know, uh, there's a, if you know about the caste system, there are five castes. I'm not Brahmin, but Khatriya, or I can be scheduled caste. So people ask me which one I belong to, right? Or my name, you know, Rumel is not proper Christian name, quote-unquote, or mm. English name. I'm not Peter or John or, you know. And Haldar is more surname. You know, most Hal means plow. Dar means who control plow. So it's a, it's a, so I came from a farming community, mm. right? So or my grandparent was a priest or a school teacher and a farmer. So all these things actually in different ways, my identity shaped, negotiated in this new location. Or obviously as a male, I, I had lots of privilege, you know, to study male migrants. At the same time, I missed women's perspective of life because uh, many Bangladeshi women, they maintain parda or, you know, niqab or their space is very gendered in many ways. So I didn't able to observe those things, right? But I explained that in my research. Could you maybe speak a bit on how the communities that you were that you were working with and creating relationships with, some of the findings of your research and how Bengali immigrants have negotiated their own identities in space within Canada? Well, that's a good question. I looked at gender perspective, I looked at religious perspective, class perspective when you look at the identity issues. But one thing I should say, Religion plays a significant role among Bangladeshi immigrants. Uh, and uh, it's not just Bangladesh. I, I, I mostly focus on Bangladesh Hindu, Christian, and Muslims. I didn't find many Buddhists, or I didn't pay attention to ethnic minorities, right, or indigenous communities. So I found, like, all three groups, Bangladeshi Christians, Hindus, and Muslims, they took religion as a shield mm. to define their new identity in a, in a Canada or protect their identity. Because they think Canada is a strange land, or Canada is, you know, lots of impure space in a different way. So lots of alcoholism, or gayism, or lesbianism, or you know, something they never experienced back home, right? Or sometimes we think like migration is a it's, it's a journey, but it's called class degradation, right? So you were back home, you were a doctor, now you are not a mm. doctor anymore. So you know, to or you are a you have a different class position, but in a new location, you do not have that. So in order to, uh, you know, face all kind of uncertainties in their life, they took religion as a shield, right? So, so to protect their identity, they, I'm talking about all three, like the, 
Bangla I found that Bangladeshi religion, uh, immigrants, they pick religion as, as one of the key basis of defining their identity, along with their ethnic identities. But I think ethnic identity turned into second categories, rather than religion. They wanted to be a proper religious individual. So okay. Hindus become super Hindus, or they start practicing Hinduism closely. Muslims also become super Muslim. They try to prefer to pray five times or go to the Friday prayer, eat halal food. All Many of my responders, they didn't bother to do any of those things back home. But within six months of their migration, they changed their perspective. And Christians, you know, another funny story is we have Bengali name and we also have English name for Christians. So I found most of the Bangladeshi Christians, they hide their Bengali name. They all turn into, you know, Joseph, Peter, Dorothy, Mary. Right? I said, who are these people? <laughs> I'm just joking. Because they think they, they feel comfortable that we are mm. Christians. Canada is also a Christian country, quote-unquote. So probably, you know, they can challenge their minority identity in a new location to picking up English name or to proclaim themselves they are Christians. Like, because that, that's the way within their community they probably challenge dominant, you know, Muslims. Or, you know, now it's a Christian country, so we mm. are powerful, quote-unquote, you know what I'm saying? So that's another aspect. At the same time, we also see cultural issues also important, ethnic identity, Bengali migrants, they celebrate New Year's Day, celebrate national events, you know, uh, linguist. If you know, in Winnipeg, we have a monument in, in a Karchbik Park, and it's, it's the, the monument based on International Mother Language Day. So, oh. yeah, it's, uh, I think, one of the important, you know, sculpture in Canadian perspective, I would say. So. We see this kind of events like Bengali immigrants, they celebrate, you know, um, birthday of Ramindranath Tagore. He's one of the Bengali Nobel laureate poet and Independence Day or Victory Day, Bengali na uh, New Year's Day. So all these days they celebrate in a new location to define their identity. You know, eat Bengali food and wear clothings and stuffs. That, or lots of musicians, actors, you know, they are also visit on and off, you know, that's kind of transnational exchange also happening or watching Bengali movies, going to a theater, all kind of stuff they do. Mm. To, or immigrant parents force their kids to go to Bengali school or learn Bengali or how to read and write. So this kind of initiatives also there. So one way or another to define their space, define their identity. Don't be Canadian. Or one of my mm -hmm. respondents said, you know, when you come to Canada, when you come to my home, you speak Bengali, right? Mm. My home is Bangladesh. Outside, whatever you do, you can do. So this kind of interactions is very defining your identity. There are so many strategies or negotiation, negotiating strategies immigrants pick, either food is one of them, right? Eating local food or wearing dresses, speaking languages or, you know, visiting, or sometimes learning Arabic or Sanskrit or religion, religious rules and regulations. In terms of the transnational experience, would you say that, like, identity is not just about conserving your culture from your home, but also incorporating and mixing cultures and sharing of traditions? And Well, again, it depends on if it is second second generation or third generation migra immigrants, 
they are different stories mm. but in the first generation what i observe in my research i see less mixing happen mm. okay one of the key reasons they are all fighting to survive in a new location so as a minority as a minority or yeah. economic minority like you you came to a new country you have to pay your bills you have to work for jobs you know so you do not have chance to go to watch a jazz game or mm. you cannot afford it right or yeah. As an individual, for example, it is almost impossible to mix with others. Or in my own research experience or lived experience, I would say, I'm blessed that I came to universities. I have graduate friends or students who come to Canada. They have a different stories. But migrants who come as a family or as an individual, they might, in the, in the, it is almost difficult for them or impossible to mix and understand or you know blend all kind of aspects because survival is important aspect so that's one thing i found that you know there's some structural inequalities if you want to mix with others it is, it should be your initiative there's no programs i would say or state funded programs where you can go to a jazz game or you can attend a concert or you can you can do something you know fun those are expensive you know you have to buy yeah. tickets and stuffs and you know or so some cultural struggles also there or embargo for example most of the bangladesh is they they're muslims they do not drink officially many of them they do or food like whether you can eat pork or not that kind of issues also important so there's some purity and pollution perspective also there like whether it is okay to hang around with others i found like the first generation of immigrants they try to protect themselves they are living in a bubble or they hang around among each other or they have their own small group four or five families eventually they become a very close connections among each other that's the way they survive so i don't see much happening in the first generation in the second generations probably yes they mm-hmm. have more options to meet or probably go to school go to universities they have the chance to meet new friends and stuff like that so that is happening but at the same time you know first generation immigrants they have their tendency to protect their identity so they do not want to you know melt it down you know i'm saying i want mm-hmm. to keep my identity intact anyhow so as i said in my discussion that people probably practice religion to protect their identity because bengali ethnic identity is not that strong in many ways if i pick bengali or Bengali Islamic identity probably better stronger than or pa- they connect with the pan Islamic you know identity or pan Hindu identity or Christianity obviously like it's a privilege for many Bangladeshi Christians and i think in anthropology i mean we are focused on the differences between people but differences in a way that's meant to kind of highlight the beauty of different cultures mm-hmm. and different people around the world so i guess in that way when we're talking about people trying to protect their identities as migrants or immigrants coming to a new country to a certain extent that's what probably everyone would mm-hmm. do if they were put into that situation of fighting for survival in certain mm-hmm. respects so i thank you for um talking more about that i was also wondering your research on immigrants in canada is there something that anthropology can maybe contribute in terms of allowing others to learn more about the experiences absolutely like if you look at the whole idea of globalization or or transnational migration like let's talk about a little bit of globalization because my research is very much grounded with the idea of globalization post colonialism and transnationalism 
So generally we think that globalization brings lots of positive stuff and in different ways it is true. But everybody talks about globalization if you go to Hollywood stars to Clarchy Man, everybody is talking about globalization. It's a buzzword nowadays. <laughs> but uh, we are losing the essence of globalization, I would say more. But we think it's more, it's a part of neoliberal economy, expansion of market, and it creates opportunity and stuff like that. But anthropology, as, as a discipline, we want to see people behind the skin, like who are these people? Who are the beneficiaries? Who are the losers? Why people make their decisions? Why people like me, all the way from Bangladesh coming to Canada, right? Or sometimes people take, you know, dangerous journey, you know, many of them die, many boats are sinking, you know, or people are shot by border guards. Mm -hmm. So human diversity, human dynamism, human challenges, or these are the anthropological work, or anthropologists pay attention to that part. At the same time, if you think Canada as a multicultural country, like when people come to Canada, they bring their stories, their life. I would say in, in anthropology can help us to understand complexity of human life, complexity of every cultural groups and when they come and how they negotiate. So in futures, there could be tensions among each other. So if we have clear understanding of those communities, it will help us to define immigration policies or social policies and uh, to build this country with all incorporating diversity, it is important to understand complex characteristics of each ethnic groups in different ways because we all have our own stories, own struggles, and those are important stories. I would say anthropology helps us to understand, to put yourself in other people's shoes and see something from people's perspective because sometimes we see nowadays, if you look at the right-wing politics moving different directions, you know, in North America and also in Europe. So acceptance is important question for many immigrants. Or another way we can see tolerance. So these two concepts are important to pay attention and anthropologists, we are probably help to explain the complexity of migration. But anthropology, as I said, that we, uh, we are not economists. Economists define the you know, economic aspect of globalization. Political scientists probably talk about political aspect of globalization. We anthropologists, we pour atten pay attention to cultural aspect, like how cultural diversity, as we discuss identity, or different stories people have, their struggle, their challenges. We pay attention to gender, we pay attention to race, we pay attention to people we left behind. The, mm -hmm. And people do not, when they come to another country, they do not, you know, stop connecting. It's called, trans, as we mentioned, trans. We keep connecting to each other. So how these things shape my life and everything. So those stories are more important in anthropological research. And I would say that, you know, in future, in a, in a decades or more, two decades, you'll see lots of people, they are not European descendants or, you know, they look different, they smell different, they talk different with an accent like me. So how they are finding their space in Canada and as a social scientist, we probably design the social policy. That's why anthropology is important to understand the cultural diversity, inclusion, acceptance and multiplicity, I would say. That's the beauty of a society. If you look at a house, you know, there are 12 pillars, not one or two pillars, right? So we need many pillars to mm -hmm. make the house stronger. So 
I would say acceptance is more, and that's the idea anthropologist we can work, you know. Well, I thank you for sharing the perspective of anthropology and what it can bring in terms of thinking about globalization, because I think that is a topic that a lot of people are thinking about and seeing in terms of the mixing of cultures mm-hmm. and just the increased connectedness of the world. Mm-hmm. Globalization is not just container of goods and services moving different yeah. directions. That is happening, but people are also might, you know, moving you know, in response. And who is losers? Like when I wear Bangladeshi made t-shirt in Canada and workers in Bangladesh getting 40 cents per hour, we cannot ignore that unequal exchange that is extending under neoliberal economy or post-Fordist model of economy. Well, Dr. Halder, I thank you for this conversation. And I think we're kind of reaching the end of all the time that we have okay. for today. But before we before we head out, uh, what is one of your favorite foods or dishes to eat? I love food. If you, <laughs> I don't like any, I love food. Any food you, you prepare with your heart and I, I can eat, but favorite food is a good question. I guess it doesn't need to be your favorite. It could just be something that you enjoy eating on a regular. Well, I love Italian food, that's for sure. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, another reason, when as a grad student, I work in an Italian restaurant, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So can you imagine Bangladeshi brown guy <laughs> making Italian food? So Italian food I love. Nowadays I love sushis. I love Mexican food too, right? I'm always looking for new sushi places mm-hmm. to try because I also really like sushi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing. Thanks. It was very th- thank you so much, sir, for welcoming me. And probably this is my first podcast, and <laughs> you know, I do not know. Thanks for having me. It, it was joy. So this brings us to the end of this episode here on Human to Human. If you are new to anthropology, I hope you were able to gain a better understanding of what anthropology is and some of the topics that sociocultural anthropologists are interested in studying. I also hope you will tune into the next episode where I do an interview with Dr. Julia Gamble, who is an anthropology professor here at the University of Manitoba. In my interview with Dr. Gamble, we get to hear more about how different subfields in anthropology can be combined, such as the case of bioarchaeology, and we'll also hear more about Dr. Gamble's research interests in studying human teeth from the past, and the ways our dental enamel are actually very similar to tree rings in the way they store indicators of stress in our early life experiences. If you want to hear more from this podcast, Human to Human is available for listening on several platforms. We are on Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, as well as YouTube. If you like this episode or have any questions, it would be great to hear from you in the comment section. We also have an email that you can contact the podcast through, and that will be included in the description box down below. I would also like to give a special thanks to the people at UMFM for providing me with the space and equipment to make this podcast possible, as well as the Department of Anthropology for funding this project, and of course, Dr. Laura Rosanoff. Gauvin, Dr. Warren Clark, and Dr. William Flynn at Carleton University, who have been some of my supporters in making this project happen. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join me, Sarah Schur, on the next episode of Human to Human.